with the self-appointed revolutionary of reason, Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio, the place where most of you uh, won't have to be told what to do by us. We won't tell you how many people to mix with. We will not tell you uh, you shouldn't have any parties. And most importantly of all, we will not tell you that the rules only apply to you and, of course, not to us. That's right. We are the world headquarters of common sense, unlike Downing Street, which appears to be once more angling for the title of worst run government in the history of Britain. This morning, we are greeted with yet more headlines and details of yet another lockdown party at number 10, while we are all told not to mix with more than one person outside at any given time. Over in the seat of government, however, it was okay in May 2020 for the Prime Minister's principal private secretary to send out invitations to over 100 people, telling them to bring their own booze to a shindig in the garden, complete with an informal buffet. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not sure what the difference is between an informal buffet uh, and a formal buffet is. We'll be asking some experts to find out. But also, by the way, apparently this guy Reynolds, who's the principal private secretary, uh, is facing pressure to resign. Well, how about the boss? Why is Boris Johnson not facing pressure to resign? I think the point is he is facing pressure to resign. Perhaps the most ridiculous aspect of all of this is the fact that Boris Johnson isn't sure whether he was there or not. He's waiting for the investigation into parties at Downing Street to tell him. Hmm? Yeah, I can't remember what I did uh, last May or the May before. And in fact, I can never ever in in any way be able to confirm what I did uh, without running an investigation first to tell me whether I was there. Dominic Cummings seems to think Boris was there, seems to think he was there with Carrie. uh, And in fact, uh, there were lots more calls within the party and without the party for his resignation. But here's the question. Will bungling Boris survive this one as well? We'll be asking John Rental, Chief Political Commentator for The Independent. What better day to welcome John back to The Independent Republic for the first time in 2022? We're also talking to Professor Angus Dalgleish. He's keen to see the end of the obsessive testing, as he calls it, that is driving so much of the policy on COVID in this country. He reckons, like many observers of the pandemic, that it's time to stop testing people who don't have any symptoms to look for something that might not be there. Laura Dodsworth is also here. She'll bring us her thoughts on the Novak Djokovic debacle in Australia, plus all the backpedalling that's been going on behind the scenes in government and with the Sage Brigade as well. 0344 499 1000. We'll also be seeking the guidance of two talk radio titans as well. James Whale is here with a view on how to keep warm after an energy company told its customers to eat porridge, cuddle your cat and do star jumps if you can't afford to heat your house. Marvellous, isn't it? Fantastic. And Kevin O'Sullivan will explain why the Pope is now back on side after his instruction last week for people to have more children instead of keeping pets. It's a marvellous, marvellous day to be talking about so many things and we've got plenty to get along with. 0344 499 We want your calls as well. Tell us what you were doing in May 2020. Probably not what Boris was doing, having plenty of parties in the garden. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Time to say a very good morning, and I think still we can say a happy new year. You know, it's Tuesday, January 11th, to John Rental. John, uh, welcome. Very nice to see you again. <laughs> happy new year to you, Mike. Now, I mean, it doesn't seem that long since we saw each other, but it does seem to me that we were talking about parties the last time uh, you and I were together. Um, here we are once again with yet another party. Yet another breaking of the rules, it would appear. But most ridiculously of all, perhaps, Boris Johnson saying he can't remember whether he was there or not. Well, exactly. Uh, I mean, the, this party story has, has just gone on and on. And this party, the 20th of May uh, 2020, was just two days before the Dominic Cummings uh, flit to Durham story was, uh, was broken. 
Uh, and I remember at the time being slightly puzzled as to why the Prime Minister was standing by uh, Dominic Cummings so resolutely yes. on, on that issue. It seemed, uh, it seemed like misplaced loyalty, but actually it turns out that there's probably a bit more to it than that. Well, it does, doesn't it? And that is really where the problem lies, because like we said last time, it's never one thing. It's not, you know, the stench of hypocrisy because of one party. It's the stench of hypocrisy because of several parties in what would appear to be a kind of party atmosphere where almost every two or three days it was, oh, we're all working terribly hard. Let's all have a shindig in the garden. Well, exactly. And when uh, that video of uh, Allegra Stratton uh, came to light, uh, where she was asked about a Christmas party. Uh, and uh, that, that was published in December. Uh, and Boris Johnson was asked about that in the House of Commons. He said he was sickened by the sight of uh, civil servants uh, appearing to make light of the, uh, the regulations mm. uh, at the time. Uh, but now he's going to have to say that uh, when you know, he's asked by uh, Keir Starmer or Angela Rayner, whoever it is tomorrow, uh, he's going to have to say he was sickened to discover that he was uh, apparently at a party. Uh, <laughs> well, quite. In fact, I'm glad you brought that up because we've got that clip and I just want to have a, a look at it to remind ourselves of exactly how disgusted he was. Mr Speaker, may I begin by saying that I understand and share the anger up and down the country at seeing Number 10 staff seeming to make light of lockdown measures. And I can understand how infuriating it must be to think that the people who have been setting the rules have not been following the rules, Mr Speaker, because I was also furious to see that clip. Well, he was furious to see the clip, all right, but maybe not for the same reason that the rest of us were. <laughs> <laughs> well, absolutely. And, but he, he actually phrased it ex extremely well there, that uh, the people who were setting the rules were not following the rules. I mean, that was the problem. If you are going to use the criminal law uh, to enforce public health uh, regulations, you, you've got to make sure that everybody in government, from the Prime Minister downwards, uh, is obeying every single letter of that law. And uh, it's going to be hard for the Prime Minister to, uh, to, to assert, continue to assert that that was the case. And also, if it turns out that uh, he was at this party, as I suspect it will, since others have said yeah. that he was, um, surely he's told an untruth in the House of Commons, hasn't he? By saying well, no, how because... shocked he was. No, well, obviously... Uh, he's going to take the line that, you know, I was obviously, I was having meetings in the garden of uh, Downing Street all the time. Uh, and I had no idea that this was actually a, uh, this was a drinks party and not a, uh, not a work meeting. Uh, because, Dom I mean, the problem is Dominic Cummings has slightly um, given him an out, hasn't he? Because Dominic Cummings says that photo of him on the terrace with a bottle of wine, uh, that was a work meeting. Mm. Uh, whereas the party he wasn't at, uh, a few days later, that was a party, and that was very bad. Well, well I mean, um, certainly, I would. I, you could certainly convince me very easily that they were drinking a lot of wine in order to make some of the policy they were making back then. <laughs> it doesn't seem to make an awful lot of sense much of it, but there we are. That's another story altogether. But but it's it's the fact that he just seems to tell one sort of untruth after another in order to get out of a particular situation he's in at the time. Doesn't seem to yeah. care that that may put him into a worse situation down the road. Well, yeah, I mean, that's how that's how Boris Johnson has got through life. Um, 
Yes, so it ha- well, exactly. But in, it in, but in the end, John, people like that end up becoming unstuck. As I said to Julie Hartley Brewer, he's treating us like he's treated all of the people in his life up to now. He's just told yeah. them anything so he can get out the door and avoid being given a going over, you know, verbally, you know, being caught out having uh, dinner with the wrong woman. He just makes up some stuff to get out of the door before he gets shouted at, you know. Yeah, but I mean, you say, yeah, but I mean, he's ended up. Um, as prime minister, as a result of uh, 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 getting into all those scrapes. Well, that should that should tell you more about the system than it does about the man, perhaps. Well, exactly. So, but I'm not sure it's guaranteed that all that all that stuff is going to catch up with him. Uh, in the sense that I'm not sure that uh, Martin Reynolds, his uh, his uh, principal private secretary, um, is going to say, "Oh, well, you know, the prime minister told me to to, to organise a drinks party." Because uh, that would be extremely damaging for, for for Boris Johnson, but I suspect we're going to discover that it was uh, it was Martin Reynolds's own own idea, um, and you know the idea that Sue Gray, a civil, I mean, you know, she is a she's a civil servant of of the highest reputation uh, for integrity and independence, but the idea that she will decide that the prime minister broke the law, uh, I don't think is is credible. I mean, I think she will she will conclude that there were grey areas. It was all. It was all very unclear, and the prime minister just thought he was at a, yes. a, a gathering. And, and, that was, and, and, and that's all. And that's all very well, but the perception. Um, I'm afraid, is what will become the reality. And as many people have said, um, you know, I certainly was in in May of 2020 visiting my children for the first time in eight weeks uh, where I hadn't seen them at all because I thought it was not the right thing to do. We sat in the garden, we looked at each other, stared at each other for a while, had a bit of a barbecue and I went back to London. You know, um, similarly, I cancelled my trip to America because I couldn't go there. And an awful lot of people are saying, you know, there are things that we sacrificed because we thought we should do the responsible thing. And it would certainly appear, regardless of whether they say we or we were socially distancing, we were working, you know, we were all obeying the rules. It was clearly a very different world inside of Downing Street. Well, absolutely. And, and the problem is with that email uh, that we've now seen inviting people to a socially to socially distanced drinks. Uh, that doesn't sound like a, a, a gathering that is reasonably necessary for work purposes. That sounds like a party. No. I mean, I um, came to work every single day through the whole pandemic, right? I never worked from home. I was always in the office. But when, at the height of the pandemic, it was a pretty serious lockdown, I, ca- I literally came, I literally drove into the office, parked the car, walked in, did the show, went home. There was yeah. no, nobody saying to me, oh, we're all working terribly hard. Let's all have a bit of a, a drinks do on the terrace. That didn't happen. Well, exactly. Um, and so, we, well, we, we look forward to with bated breath to how the Prime Minister is going to... Uh, going to try and uh, smooth his way out of this one. Yes, and I mean, it becomes ever-increasingly kind of more like a carry-on film, doesn't it, where the excuses get more and more outlandish and uh, the the whole situation seems to be ridiculous. And surely the point at which I always get to with you, John, uh, is when the party pressure becomes so much that basically Boris has to has to shuffle off. I think you and I both agreed that May is going to be pivotal um, if the elections in May, the local elections, prove that Boris Johnson is no longer an electoral ballot box winner. I think he's yeah. done for. Well, we'll see about that. I mean, I'm not sure. Uh, these things take time to percolate through. Uh, and because the next general election's probably not until 2024, mm. um, Boris Johnson does have time to turn it around. Um, now, that I mean, I, th- I think once you're, once you're in... Once you're talking about time to turn it round, then you know that uh, he's doomed because you know, every every time he tries to turn it round, it gets worse. Well, that's right. But, I mean, every 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 corner he turns, there's an even bigger monster there waiting for him. Yeah, but I still don't believe. I mean, if you you just need to go to the, go to the bottom line. I, I don't believe there are 55 uh, 
uh, Tory MPs who, who want to see a vote of confidence in him uh, yet. Uh, and even if there were, I don't believe that a majority of the uh, of the parliamentary party would would vote to get rid of him. Uh, and the problem with the problem with triggering a vote of confidence is, of course, that then we 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 had this situation with Theresa May. Once once she won that vote of confidence, yeah. she was then safe for a year. Then you're stuck. Yeah. So that's why I think they'll wait until May, though, because surely there yeah. will be 55 MPs who will ask for uh, a new leader should Tory um, party policy be battered in that local election. Yes, but I mean, we're still at that point. We're still two years away from from a general election, and I, you know, Tory MPs uh, are prone to to panic and disorder. But I don't think they'll panic. Yes, but uh, there's an the, awful lot of disquiet, isn't there, John, about the policies of the party as well. It's not just about Boris's personal kind of rating, and not just about his unpopularity and the fact that people yeah. now don't take him very seriously. It's also the net zero business, which an awful lot of MPs are not happy about. It's yeah, also yeah. The, their failure to crack down on, on, on the uh, immigration problems. It's also yeah. the law. You know, there's an awful lot of other issues around um, Boris, which don't just involve his own personality. And, and higher taxes is, is higher taxes as well. Yeah, really gets them gets them going. But you've got to distinguish between uh, issues like net zero and, and higher taxes, where I don't think backbench Tories are with the majority of public opinion. Uh, I mean, public opinion is pretty soft on, on, on green issues. They think we should... Yeah, but should... it's only soft until it starts hitting them in the pocket, John. We've had this same conversation yeah. before. If somebody says to you, do you want to damage the planet? You're not going to say yes, are you? But no, if absolutely. they say, are you willing to pay an extra £1,000 a year in tax in order to save the planet? They're going to say no. And when your yeah. uh, electricity bill becomes £1,000 instead of 500 you start to sympathise with those who say, maybe we should take this green subsidy away, which only serves to feather the nests of very wealthy millionaires anyway. Well, indeed. And, uh, and well, we can expect something from the Chancellor on that, I think, in the next uh, in the next few weeks. Yeah. Um, but it won't be enough, and people will still, will still complain. But, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I think the... I think the failure to stop the boats coming across the channel is actually a, a, a much more serious problem. It's huge. Very big. Public, public opinion is very clear on that, that they want the government to, to, control, uh, to control immigration, and it doesn't look as if they've got control of immigration. No. Take back control is a slogan which has come and bit, bitten them in the, in the face. Right. Well, we started the new year as we ended the last uh, year with more people arriving on the beaches. You know, I think the first 60 yeah. arrived on the first boat on sort of January the 2nd. So, you know, yeah. we, we are where we were. Nothing well, and, changed. And, and, and the Conservative Party is in the ridiculous position of, uh, of, of hoping and imagining that uh, somehow the French will get a grip on this situation yeah, they once, won't. once Emmanuel Macron is safely re-elected. I mean, this this is not a problem that has been created by the French in order to in, in order to get Macron votes in the French presidential mm. elections. They could not care less about this problem. No, exactly um, right. And, and when you see people, go away. and also when you see you know reasonably important figures like Lord Frost and uh, even. Um, uh, Davidson up in Scotland. Um, yeah. That, is she Dame Davidson now? I can't remember. Um, you know, they're fairly significant figures in the Tory party saying that, you know, he's taking the wrong direction. He needs to, he needs to head the, the ship back uh, on course. And, and that's what an awful lot of people are now telling me from the sort of traditional side of the Tory party. Well, except that, you know, Ruth Davidson and, and, and David Frost come from completely opposite ends of the, of the Tory party. Well, exactly. But what it tells you is, is that they're One not eight, happy about his conservative policy, which is not conservative. Yeah, but as long as he's under attack from both sides, he's, he's, he's probably reasonably safe. It's, that's, the it's argument, that's the argument the BBC used to use. Look what happened to them. <laughs> well, 
we shall see. I suspect that uh, you know, Boris Johnson will will tough this one out. It, it's it's hugely embarrassing, and we know from the opinion polls uh, in December that the Christmas party's issue is incredibly damaging to mm. the Tory party. Yeah. Uh, and although uh, you know Boris Johnson has managed to bounce back a little bit in the first polls of the new year, uh, I think this is going to this is going to do continuing damage. But I still think that we're too far away from a general election to to force the Tory party to, to, to get rid of it. OK, well, stay there. Hold that thought because I'm going to come back to you on that. My view is, is that after May, if the election results are bad, the local election results are bad, he is toast. And I don't think that would be any bad thing. I've been calling for him to be going uh, now for quite some time. And I think he's proving himself to be a liability. He's proving himself to be untrustworthy. He has, he has no respect. People are laughing now at the Tory government. And that is never a good place to be. The Independent Republic of Mike. Graham on Talk Radio. We're talking to John Rental, Chief Political Commentator at The Independent. There are still those who say, stop giving him a hard time. He was nearly dead a few weeks earlier. He was in hospital. He had COVID. Surely he's entitled to have a bit of fun uh, if he's feeling up to it. Well, I seem to remember, John, um, that back in that sort of time in May, he was still not looking particularly healthy and he wasn't looking as though he was the sort of guy that would go out partying every night. Um, but yeah. maybe that's what was going on. Who knows? Well, yeah, I mean, I suspect, you know, his story is going to be, you know, I was I was there 15 minutes talking about about work to uh, to my senior colleagues. Uh, and uh, I do, do not recognize the description of it as a party. Um, and you know, I'm sure everyone will end up agreeing that it was all uh, it's it all terribly unclear. Uh, and uh, very unwise for him yeah. to... Yeah, I mean, uh, certainly certainly the one thing that you can, I would have thought, conclude without any um, disagreement with anyone is that it's pretty clear that they didn't take COVID very seriously. Because if they did, and if they, they thought that it was as dangerous as they were telling us that it was, and that we could only go out on our own. I mean, there's an amazing uh, Metropolitan Police um, uh, tweet, which I shall read out to you, uh, which yeah. says here... Um, have you been enjoying the hottest day of the year so far? It is important that we all continue to stay alert. You can relax, have a picnic, exercise or play sport as long as you are, one, on your own, two, with people you live with, or three, just you and one other person. And then there's yeah. a fascinating picture of one poor lonely soul walking on his own. And that's, yeah. what, and that's what most people were told they had to do. And so clearly, clearly, if that's what we had to do for safety reasons to protect the NHS, why weren't they doing it? Well, Exactly. Uh, and and I suppose you could say that the argument is they were already working together uh, indoors. No, that's cobblers because I'm working together with people indoors, but I couldn't go out with more than one of them. No, I know, but that's the, but the point is the rules were absurd. Yeah, uh, and I think the rules were were. Yeah, those were, of, yeah, but those of us who obeyed the rules but later yeah. said that they were absurd were castigated. They set Neil O'Brien on a bunch of journalists to make out that we were all sort of refuseniks and and COVID deniers in his words. Well, exactly, and that's uh, but that's that is. So the let's point. not so let's not forget that, and let's not just go. Oh, well, that's all right. Then they were just working together. I'm not having that. Yeah. No. Well, of course you can't because uh, absurd though the rules were, it was it was Boris Johnson's government that had put them into legislation. Yeah. It was a criminal offence. Yeah. To, to break those rules, and therefore uh, the government, above all, I mean the legislators had to be uh, had to be bound by their own legislation. Mm. It's what the, it's what Prime Minister said in that clip you played of him. Um, you know, if you're going to make the rules, you you have to abide by them. Exactly, and, and that's the problem they got into. If they had stuck with the Swedish approach of, of voluntary uh, rules and, and guidance, then they wouldn't be in this trouble. Right, but you spent most of last year and the year before telling me that more people wanted more lockdowns. Yes, 
Absolutely. Well, well, well this, is, this is the problem. This is the problem with giving in to well, apparently, well, apparently, the only people who didn't want them were all working in Downing Street. <laughs> well, exactly. But they gave <laughs> in to public opinion, and they legislated for all these all these lockdowns. I mean, I remember the Prime Minister expressing expressing surprise in one of those very early press conferences when uh, when Larissa Brown from the from the Daily Mail said, "Are you going to get the police to enforce these rules?" And he said, "The police." It was obviously an absurd idea as, as, uh, to him. Um, a liberal, a liberal Tory, mm. and he didn't, he didn't particularly want to in- introduce uh, legislation, but he was persuaded to do so. Uh, he should have held out. He should have stuck to his original instinct. Well, I mean, that's what we've been saying for a long time. I'm glad to see you're finally coming around to the talk radio way of thinking, John. You know, it's only taken, <laughs> it's only taken two years. Um, what about when the police come knocking on Ten Downing Street's door and ask to see his papers and any records he may or may not have? Last time they said they didn't have, any, couldn't find any evidence. They didn't bother going. What are they going to yeah. do this time? Well, but this this time it's interesting that because the uh, the email has been published, they seem to think uh, perhaps there is some evidence. Okay, um, and they are they are going to investigate. But uh, you know, there's a, it's a long way between now and and a successful prosecution, isn't yes. it? I mean, it would have to go to the Crown Prosecution Service uh, and all the rest of it. And I I just don't think that those kind of political prosecutions are ever very likely to to, to come up with a... uh, Well, I mean, as you say, the whole notion that it's somehow uh, a police matter is kind of ridiculous anyway. But I I would be keen to know when this this, uh, investigation is being published. When is that going to be published? What, the Sue Gray investigation? We don't know. We haven't been told. Um, She has been interviewing senior civil servants, and we gather that she wants to speak to the Prime Minister uh, himself. I don't know if that has happened yet. Uh, but uh, the way these civil service inquiries uh, tend tend to go on is uh, is long, so I wouldn't I well, wouldn't expect. Well, I mean, she knows where he is. Off. I mean, this is the other laughable aspect of government, isn't it? You know, if I was involved in an inquiry uh, in my place of work, uh, I would get summoned by somebody and told to show up in an office where I would be grilled for some period of time over what happened, and it wouldn't yeah. it wouldn't be a case of me saying, oh, "I'm sorry, I can't do it today." They'd be like, "Well, <laughs> I think you can actually. Uh, we'll see you after one." <laughs> yeah. But uh, as as I said, the, you know, the prime minister does have to come up with with some form of words uh, tomorrow when yes. he's uh, when, when he's in the chamber of the House of Commons. And is and is Sakir out of isolation yet, or is he back in it? What's going on? We have not yet been told. I mean, I, this must be day six or seven of his isolation, so he has to test negative twice. Um, so we shall we shall wait wait and see. Otherwise, Angela Rayner will get another go. Yes. Well, I mean, good luck to her, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it's going to be a fascinating day tomorrow. But, John, thank you very much indeed. John Rental, Chief Political Commentator with The Independent. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Uh, let's talk now to Professor Angus Dalgleish, Professor of Oncology at the University of London, because Angus uh, wrote a piece yesterday which caught our eye in which he was talking about the obsessive testing that's being done in this country and why it needs to stop in order to actually get us back to more normal behaviour. Angus, very good morning. Happy New Year to you. Yeah, good morning and happy new year to you too. Thanks very much uh, it, indeed. It, Go on, sorry. It, it, it came to my attention that uh, everybody was uh, testing themselves obsessively and becoming positive. And it's in only when about half the people in my own uh, working environment basically uh, came in and said they were positive following right. uh, Christmas festivities. And they're people who, they've not been running around being careless. They're people who are quite obsessive. Mm. So there's sort of people who are double vaccinated. In fact, the ones that got ill, they've all been triple vaccinated. Right. And they, they have mild symptoms or they've been in contact with somebody with mild symptoms. 
so they're positive, so they're off. They can't work. Yeah. Now, this has been replicated all over the country, and particularly in the NHS, where in some hospitals, up to half the people, uh, people at the front line, are, are not uh, there. And this is a bigger crisis than uh, before when they're overwhelmed with patients. And so it is clearly madness. It is, it is suicidal to uh, allow people to keep testing themselves, mm. particularly when the worst outcome is a mild cold flu, from which they get over quite yes. quickly in two to three days. So I would get rid of all testing completely and utterly. I would get rid of all the quarantine, and I would only use the testing for diagnosis. You have somebody who's not well, do they have the cold? Do they have COVID? Do they have pneumonia? Uh, that's the only test I would do now. I, I would do no test and trace, no no trying to work out what's going on. Mm. We know what's going because it on. Gives us, it gives crime. us a false kind of reason to believe that the, uh, the crisis, if you like, is worse than it is because we see 200,000 people have tested positive in one particular day, which looks like a terrible statistic. But for most of those people, they won't even probably have any symptoms. But I suppose that what those who would, who would argue with you, uh, Angus, would say is that the reason that we need to know who's positive and who's not is that even though it might be a very mild form of COVID for you, you could still pass it on to somebody else. Well, that's one way. The only the only time I think that this is this is important is if you're looking at people going going into hospitals or people who are at risk care homes. Mm. They're the only that's the only time I would use uh, the test to see whether it was COVID or not. What we're finding out is that COVID is very it's so infectious it's not worth. That isolating and taking these uh, precautions mm. for. I mean, I think that Scotland and Wales are just making laughing stock of themselves, carrying on like they are. Mm. I mean, just everybody I know over the Christmas period, uh, about half of them have had the Omicron. I mean, and they're all very uh, careful people, double, triple vaccinated, uh, test negative before they have, a, have a, a meeting or a lunch or something, and they're still ending up two to five days later positive. So what is the point? Mm. I think actually the concept that the Omicron is the is the best vaccine the population has been exposed to. It's something we should embrace because it is inducing a different spectrum from the vaccines that have been used to date and it should mm. be much broader and protect us from other variants. Well, there is, a, there is an that. argument, isn't there, Angus, that the, this particular variant has kind of killed off the other ones, which is a good thing because this one is less virulent and less damaging. It, it absolutely it is it is really like a, a sibling bully that uh, bulldozed everybody else out the way and taken over the uh, the room of the field for themselves and the good thing is it's less of a problem than the bullies like the delta variant etc that were competing with it it's mm. just completely pushed it out the way mind you that's not going to stop the uh, scientific colleagues of doom and gloom uh, occasionally finding other variants which they will uh, threaten us are going to be more worse. But I'm yes. not prepared to take that until we've got real hard data and we haven't. Yes. And you mentioned what's, the 200,000... Uh, yeah, go on, sorry. I just want to ask you a quick question about the, the so-called mm -hmm. doom and gloom experts. I mean, people like Chris Whitty, who basically said just before Christmas that, you know, we don't know much about Omicron, but what we do know is all bad. Um, after having refused to look at the data from South Africa... I mean, he either got it completely and utterly wrong or he just didn't want to accept that Omicron wasn't that dangerous. Without, without a doubt, the, the, the medical advisors who advised the government about this and the South African data 
I think were just unbelievably completely incompetent. And basically, I would sack them. Mm. I mean, I think it's time we call them the sack. They've consistently been wrong. Yeah. They've misled the country. They've in, in, uh, imposed dreadful restrictions on us. And they have always, always been wrong. Why would you keep having advisors who are completely wrong? They should be out of the country. Incredible. I think the way they responded to the South African data was beneath contempt. They were basically saying, oh, these are stupid South Africans. They get it wrong. They don't know. No, no South Africa have a higher standard of medicine. And as soon as I heard them report, I knew that they, what they were saying was absolutely real. I was 100% confident that this uh, variant was not dangerous. And it didn't matter whether you were vaccinated or unvaccinated. It was not dangerous. Mm. And this was taken on the fact only the minority of people in South Africa are vaccinated. So it spread through. It wasn't dangerous. And that Dr. Coetzee, who's head of the South African yes. Medical Association, I trusted her implicitly. She's a GP. She yeah. said that I and she's it. consistently I've said throughout, I don't understand why Britain is reacting the way that it, that it is. But to be honest, yeah. Britain is not the only country reacting this way. There's plenty of other countries in Europe doing the same thing. I, well, I agree. I think the way I think the way a lot of the countries have handled this is just appalling and diabolical and terribly frightening that we are uh, run by totally incompetent governments that yeah. uh, uh, are having dreadful advice. And the problem with the governments, none of them are capable of dealing with this level of input. I mean, there's, as uh, I like to uh, remind people that uh, Margaret Thatcher said her problem is she'll go down as the first female prime minister when she should go down as the first minister with a science degree. <laughs> yes, that right. is just so such a such an important comment on today none yeah. of them have got science degrees so how can they how can they cope with bullying self-promoting sage people basically got their own agenda and they just bully bully thank god boris stood up to them uh, and wouldn't lock down over the christmas like sturgeon and wakeford yes because it would it would have been a disaster and we've seen that not locking down made no difference. In fact, the Scottish figures and the Welsh figures are far, far higher due to lockdown, which is something else I mm. predicted earlier on. Lockdown does more harm than good, because although it contains it for a while, as soon as you go out, you're more susceptible to what's out there. Mm. And more and more people are agreeing with your point of view, Professor. You know, we were called COVID deniers by a guy uh, who now sits in the cabinet, uh, who was kind of put on attack dog status by Boris Johnson and by Matt Hancock in order to try and seed out anybody who was disagreeing with the government narrative. Absolutely shambolic and shameful behaviour from an elected politician. And I think it's time that we took that uh, into account made them say sorry, made them apologise. You know, I'd like to see Chris Whitty getting up this week in front of one of his lecterns with his slides and say, I got it completely wrong. I'd like him to see that. Well, I, I totally and utterly agree with you. I think now is the time for reckoning. I mean, I just thought it was just unbelievable that they uh, uh, gave Chris Whitty a knighthood when he's clearly been given the wrong advice yeah. uh, all the way through. I mean, unbelievable. He talks as a man who has had the experience he has of Ebola and wants desperately to apply it to everything else. Mm. Ebola is a disease that kills 30 to 90% of people it infects, and it can easily be contained with lockdown, uh, vaccine treatment, etc. So it, it, it's very vicious, but it's not the infectious thing that's going to take over the world. 
you cannot apply that thinking to what is an airborne respiratory virus disease that has indeed obeyed all the rules that we should have done. Airborne respiratory viruses disease, the first thing you do to uh, defend against them is you make sure your vitamin D is very good. Mm. If you get any symptoms, you take anti-inflammatories like aspirin. Why did they not do any of this at the beginning? They told us all to go away into bed, and uh, if you started dying, call 111 yeah. and go to hospital. Well, we now know, and I find that other doctors have felt exactly the same. We were completely silenced. Peter McCulloch in America, for instance, silenced by people like Tony Fauci, who has got a hell of a lot to uh, account for yes. when this is all over. Yeah, meanwhile, we know what they were doing in Downing Street. They were having lots of parties. So they weren't that frightened of it, it would appear. Mm. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, as we discovered today. Absolutely. Professor Angus Dalglish, thank you very much indeed. Professor of Oncology at University of London. Sensible man. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, Laura. Hello, good morning. How are you? Yeah, good. Funny old week. It is. I mean, it's a funny week for me because my son turned 17 yesterday. Ooh. It's a good age, though, isn't it, 17? Oh, it's lovely. Mm. If only his provisional driving licence would ever arrive, we could start well, on this phase of life which you're is quite learning to lucky. drive. You're quite lucky to have, able, to have even been able to get the DVLA to have admitted to actually doing something with it. No, I haven't. That's the point. I've ah. sent it and I haven't got it yet because I yeah. sent it on the day that they announced they were working from home and I thought, oh, no. So Here we how go. many months have you been waiting? Two months. Two months. So I'm not going to panic yet, but it's, no. not, it's not looking good. So he's turned 17. I turn 49, end of the week. Right. Yeah. Congratulations. Um, yeah, Many happy you. returns. Yes, it's always a busy time of the year for me. We've mm. got all the birthdays around Christmas. Are you sure you want him driving, by the way? Because I've got a 17-year-old son, and I'm not that sure I want him near a car. I do. I trust him. He's do really you? yeah. I've got so much respect for him. I think. But also, you live in I, London. I mean, I grew up in London. I don't. Right? I live in Surrey. Oh, do you? I do. Oh, yeah. sorry. I didn't know that. Quieter roads. Quieter roads. Well, because yeah. I lived in. I grew up in London, right? So I never learned to drive when I was in London. I never needed to. Went everywhere on the tube. Uh, as I got a bit older, if I started going out with people, I was in taxis or you know whatever. But I never learned to drive. It was only when I went to live in America that I thought now I've got to learn to drive. So mm. you know, I was quite late to it, and probably not a bad thing. I don't know. I think it's quite good to get it done when you're young. Mm. Just anyway, we'll see. He might be 24 by the time he gets his provisional license, but let's be positive. Yes. But this this week for me of birthdays makes me think about time marching on, you know, mm. the cycle of life. Time keeps moving, moving, yeah. moving. And in the last week there've been some really um sad messages on social media from from people saying things like I couldn't go to a funeral in yeah. May because right. of the lockdown yeah. or um I couldn't celebrate a birthday. And there are people talking about passages of time and you know really intimate human rituals they couldn't celebrate because of lockdown while downing street were having parties right. now everyone's already talking about this 
And I'm actually not really that interested in where they have parties. Mm. The bit that I really want to draw attention to before we start talking about backpedalling is that all those people at Downing Street had the data, all the data yeah. at their fingertips. They had a lot more than you and me, Mike. Yeah. They've got all of it. Yeah. So when I'm sending off emails asking who, who's in hospital with COVID, yes. of COVID, what percentage of beds are used, etc., mm. and I get no replies and I hit brick walls, they had that data. Yeah. And yet they were still at parties. So what does that tell you? That the data didn't terrify them. No. So unlike the ads they were putting out telling you, you know, hanging out in park kills or don't let a cup of coffee mm. cost lives or well, that, act like you've got it. Well, I don't know whether you saw that, uh, that tweet I, I read out from earlier, which was a Metropolitan Police tweet, which basically said, you know, have a great time. Enjoy the lovely weather as long as one, you're on your own. Or two, you're only with one other person having a picnic. Or three, you're only with the people in your household. Yeah, the rule of one. Exactly. Rule of one. It was, I think people have forgotten how tough it was back then. Yeah. You know, somebody um, somebody got fined. I think it was by I think it was by South Yorkshire Police. They were some of the worst, the they worst were. police offenders. Yeah. For um, somebody got got into trouble for having a cup of tea with a neighbour. You know, it was yes. it was one person having a cup of tea with a neighbour. Maybe they were both They going, were sending drones crackers. up, do you remember? They were sending drones up to track people walking in yeah. the countryside, you know, mm. in the open air, which was meant to be safe, according yeah. to, um, uh, you know, anybody who was in Downing Street. But, of course, it wasn't safe if you weren't in Downing Street. Exactly. So at the heart of this is the fact that officials at the highest level were not scared to go to a party. They weren't scared because they knew that risk was very connected to age and identifiable clinical conditions. We weren't all equally at risk, otherwise they never would have gone to a party. No. And I think that is interesting context for some backpedalling I mm. want to talk about. I think we're at quite an interesting time now. I we're think sort so. of poised betwixt the great backpedal, mm -hmm. which has started, it has. and the determined double down. Yes. We're at this point in between where people are beginning to kind of row back. Yeah, because the double yet, downers haven't got much to rely on. They're rock or their iceberg, if you like, is melting swiftly around them. And it's beginning to look like they might sink if they stay on it. So they're thinking, should I jump over to that one? Because that mm -hmm. one might be easier to rely on. I would say what's propped up that side, where we're seeing the determined double down, is an assumed moral superiority. Yeah. That um, lockdowns made sense because we were behaving in collective solidarity with everybody. But more and more as Except time goes on... Except it turns out we weren't. And more and more as time goes on and as harms become known, that assumed moral superiority looks more shaky. Yeah. So there's a lot of um, backpedalling going on at the moment. I mean, it's quite, it's quite something. I've been kind of collecting examples from across both sides of the pond. Mm. And the CDC has been very interesting on backpedalling. So the CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, um, said just the other day that 75% of COVID deaths had at least four comorbidities. Mm. Um, and wow. they were unwell to begin with. Yeah. Now, this isn't great news to some of us who were following the data mm. from the beginning. Yeah. Um, but it sounds because like... Because they is... consistently denied that, didn't they? They said that everybody was at the same level of risk, which clearly isn't the case. We had um, Francis Hoare on the other week, and he said the numbers, and you'll know this, I'm sure, below 60, the number of people who died from COVID, um, as best as we can tell, is around about 640 who did I... not have comorbidities and who were not... Um, suffering from some vulnerability, 600 and something. Mm. So this is this is a real backpedal. This is a clawback. But on one side, you've got this kind of doubling down. Oh, well, you know, they were really unwell to begin mm. with. That doesn't mean that those deaths aren't sad or they might not have been avoidable or they could have had better treatment or that the vaccine isn't going to help people like that now. It doesn't negate any of that. Mm. 
but it's it's still a double down but on uh, uh, sorry a back pedal but it is juxtaposed with some fabulous double downing the bbc put out a video just the other day trying to illustrate what 150,000 deaths looks like oh, because yeah. it can be quite hard to understand the scale how many people have died of well, they covid they did that football stadium thing again did they they did they showed young people in stadia it's kind of like a fun buzzy type video there's lots of p young people yeah. and this is interesting because first of all it's not all young people that died so no. they're using imagery which would give you the idea that it's lots of young people yeah. that died it, that's not true right um the other thing is there's nothing in this video about providing context so how many died with covid how many died from covid mm. just quoted um, those figures that francis hall was talking about um but then there's also there's also this misleading impression of the the young people that died and how many people died um, from other causes? Yeah. How many other excess deaths? You know, well, now, had... now do a video for excess deaths at home. So for me, this was like a blatant yeah. piece of propaganda. I'm not sure what it was designed to achieve because it's from a news organisation. So where was the context? Yes. How many people die every day? How many people die every mm. year? Are there any other diseases where we collect the deaths over seasons yes. rather than by year? Well, I can help you year? out there because only yesterday I was drawn to a, a figure from the deaths on the, the weekend, week 51 of 2021, ending on Christmas Eve, 24th of December, 800 and something deaths from COVID. Do you know how many deaths altogether? No. Over 13,000. So mm -hmm. literally COVID was less than six, well, less than 7%. Yeah. But you wouldn't know that looking at the, the news and you wouldn't know that listening to the politicians. And you certainly wouldn't know it listening to Chris Whitty. So I would say if we're going to talk about the number of people that have died, let's provide some context, some mm. information and balance it out so that people have got a wider understanding of this number. It feels like it was really to bolster fear yeah. and to, well, it just didn't provide any scale. So that's uh, backpedalling balanced with double downing. Another piece of backpedalling from the CDC again, which is interesting, they've come out and said that the PCR test can be positive for up to 12 weeks, which means, of course, it's not a very helpful indication of whether you're infectious. Now, again, some of us knew this mm. all along. This shouldn't be news, but right. it's being it's being offered up as news now. Now, the PCR test does what it does, and that's fine. It tells you if you were infected or if you're currently infected, but mm. you don't know how infectious you currently are because it's a very sensitive test. So that's fine. But it has been used in order to determine self-isolation. Yes. So it's not been used for all the correct And they purposes. keep moving the, the dial on that as well, don't they? Because now they're saying, well, maybe we can reduce the amount of time you can isolate. And you go, well, why? And they can't explain why. They think maybe you're not as um, live with the infection for as many days as they thought, which means that was wrong then, doesn't it? Well, yes, that was going to be my next one about the self-isolation. So um, I think in the States, self-isolation has been reduced to five days yeah. in most instances. It actually makes a lot of sense because you're most infectious for a day or two before symptoms mm. and for two or three days after symptoms. Right. Um, I think there's a figure they quoted, yeah, up to 90% of all transmission occurs within a five-day window. So that makes sense, mm. but that's not what we've been doing. And any voices that called out for a different approach to the length of self-isolation or understanding that PCR tests to a degree create, uh, contain false positives because they might tell you you're positive three months after mm. you had an infection, all those voices were shouted down. So on one hand, the backpedalling is good, but on the other hand, there were people who were really dismissed um, and views that were stifled for nearly two years. Yes, and many of them were people who couldn't then work or for whatever reason were kind of, you know, 
made into pariahs in the same way that people are trying to make Novak Djokovic into some kind of pariah. I mean, yeah. Steve has sent this in. He says, a question for Laura. Do you think the incessant talk of booster, booster, booster and Omicron being less deadly is actually having a negative effect on booster uptake? I'm sure that's true. I'm sure it is. And I've actually written about this multiple times, started with my book and in a few articles since on The Spectator, if you want to look them up. Once the government started using fear, it didn't really have anywhere mm. else to go. They are picking out the the toughest, the most egregious tool in the toolbox to force compliance. Yeah. When you've been threatening people with these frightening ideas about a virus, where, where, do, you, where do you come back? Yeah. So, for instance, they never said that Omicron was mild no. anywhere. anywhere. Well, and, in fact, quite I, the reverse. I mean, I was calling for Chris Whitty not only to come out and apologise, but possibly to resign yesterday, because he said before Christmas, he basically killed off all Christmas parties, all hospitality, by saying you must prioritise your socialising because we don't know much about Omicron, but what we do know is all bad. Those were his words, right? Yes. And there was a tsunami of infections coming. Mm. These are words that you know very well they're using for effect. Tidal wave was the way, was a word that, uh, a phrase that, that Boris Johnson used a few days earlier. And there was no, there was nothing... Uh, in their um, in their locker, if you like, which was which was actually real because they refused to take a, uh, account of the South African data. Mm. They said it wasn't relevant mm. for some reason. Now it turns out it was exactly relevant. Yeah, well, fables, allegories, parables—they all serve very important purposes. There's a famous one: the boy who cried wolf. The UK government and our chief medical officers have cried wolf several times. Obviously, if you keep doing it, yes, I agree with Steve, it affects public trust. It may well be affecting the booster programme. So we hear different messages about the booster. It's going really well. Mm. And then we hear, you know, oh, there's uh, 300 spaces left this right. week. Or, you know. or it's so, going really well. We've only got 200,000 um, infections today. And you go, well, they can't be both, can it? And here's the question I keep asking people, which I can't get an answer to. If... Um, you say that the two previous um, injections, the vaccinations, have worn off, like one and two. Mm. Um, if you haven't had them, is there any point in having them, or do you just go straight to three? And you can't get. An, you ask any medical governmental scientist, and they can't answer that. I don't know. Is the answer? It's it's so. Do you it, need to get one, two, and before you get three, or do you just go straight to three? Do not pass go. Are they not the same anyway? Well, no, because the third one's apparently different. Is it? Usually. Well, if you had AstraZeneca the first two times, the third one is different. Yeah. It's now Pfizer. Yeah. I don't know. I have to be careful commenting on the on the vaccine itself. I don't really understand the efficaciousness well, yeah, of it at but, all. But, but I do think I'm that saying, exaggerating the scale of the threat has yeah. made people lose trust. Yes, because people can only be told to cry wolf once. And the second time the wolf comes, it might eat them, but it doesn't mean they're going to care. Yeah, I, and the point is, is, I'm simply asking questions. I'm not questioning whether it's any good. You're not. But they don't let you do that because no. nobody gives you the answer. Yeah. I mean, look at Sajid Javid when he met the doctor who hadn't been vaccinated. And when the doctor said, look, I've got antibodies, Sajid Javid, all he could come back with was, well, that will wear off as well. OK. Let's, as well as what? That's on my list of backpedalling. Let's, uh, let's fast forward to this backpedal. Now, I thought that was a very interesting little conversation, but I, um, I probably couldn't be much more cynical than mm. I'm at now after having looked at propaganda, media communications, the public health messaging all the way through. And I thought, was this entirely coincidental? Or did Kings deliberately put that doctor right where the interview would take place? Yes. Did Sasha Javid know he was going to be there? Who knows? Yeah. Who knows what kind of I don't think level did. of staging he, might have happened? Well, because if they staged it, surely Sasha Javid would have looked better than he did. Oh, I think he, I think he could have looked worse. I think he, he handled it pretty well on the No, fly. he handled it well. But yeah. the point is, is that you came away from that conversation thinking, well, they've both got a pretty good point. 
haven't they? Um, well, I think Steve Jones had a good point. I'm afraid I don't agree with Sajid Javid at all mandating vaccines no. for healthcare workers. No, so. but what I'm saying is, is that he didn't dismiss him out of hand. He didn't say well, you should get your vaccine and you therefore are a bad person, which is what he could have done. He said that's your view, but it's not just his view. There was a House of Lords report that also Mm. concluded the same thing, that Mm. there isn't enough evidence for mandating vaccines for healthcare workers. Like Dr Steve Jones said, the science isn't there. But I did wonder if that's laying a little bit of groundwork for clawing back on mandating vaccines for NHS health workers. Well, you mean they might not do it? Who knows? I I think they will, actually, because I think they they, they can't afford to do it because we keep hearing, again, two mixed messages because you get the BMA lot and the kind of lefties in the NHS saying, oh, well, the thing is everybody wants to leave, you know, we can't recruit anybody, Mm. but at the same time we want everyone vaccinated. And you go, well, hang on, by wanting that and by sacking people who don't have a vaccine, then you're losing even more people. Why would you do that? It does appear that unions have driven a lot about this. And we we could mention that in in relation to masks in a sec. Um, There's there's another another type of backpedalling that's going on at the moment. It was big news this week that T-cells, that's a type of um, uh, memory immunity protection, from common colds have helped protect some people from COVID Mm. infection. And this was heralded as new and exciting, fresh news this week. It's not new news at all. Um, This was being talked about quite early in the pandemic. But again, those voices were really stifled and shouted down. By the time I published my book, there were actually six studies into the importance of T-cell immunity against COVID. Mm. That means you could have had previous coronavirus infections and you may not get COVID, Mm. or at least it may um, improve the severity of the infection. There's another reason that that really matters. The imperial modelling in the original, in the original modelling that said up to 500,000 people could die, didn't take T-cell cell immunity into account so t-cell immunity doesn't just mean you might be protected against covid it also affects that herd immunity threshold so this should have been a conversation and also it might explain why so many people are are affected so differently because we all know people who have had it more than once Uh, we all know people who have had it quite badly more than once Mm -hmm. and we also know people who have not had it badly at all yeah, I and mean, there's I... no explanation for that. And I think it's time the government had the data to be able to explain why it is that some people are affected more than others. I seem to have asbestos immunity shield to COVID, so we'll yeah. see. But apparently, according to a range of studies, 20 to 50 percent of people may have T cell protection mm. from coronavirus. Yeah. And that's been quite current this week. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Lord Dodsworth is here. We're dissecting uh, the, um, uh, the the way that the government is kind of slightly walking us all backwards into a different place to say that we never really said that, and even if we did say it. We didn't really mean that because, for example, today is the day, I think, when you're coming back from um, abroad, you no longer need to take a PCR test. You can now take, I think, a lateral flow test and PCR tests are kind of being phased out, it would seem. And I'm not sure why they're doing that. I haven't really explained why. I'm quite happy that they're doing it, by the way, but I don't know what they're doing it for. Well, it's not just that. Also, lateral flow tests. So there's a discussion about whether lateral flow tests should not be free anymore. Yes. And of course, some people are completely losing their minds over this. Yeah, because what's wrong they, with that? Well, they. Uh, well, oh my goodness. Andy Burnham said, you know, that they should be they should be free. And I'm like, 
Are you mad? Nothing is free. Lateral well, Andy Burnham loves giving <laughs> things away for free because he's in the Labour Party. Lateral flow tests, do they grow on the same tree as, as the magic money tree? They're not free. We're paying for yeah. it out of our taxes. For how many generations is this pandemic going to cost us? So they're not free. But also the thing about unwinding all this testing is it's going to be essential to getting back to normal because it has never been normal to mass test asymptomatic people. Yeah. And of course, there are public health experts who are really involved in public health screening, like Dr. Alison Pollock, who were always very against asymptomatic mm. mass testing right. there hasn't been one consensus view that this was the way to get through a pandemic no. makes sense at the beginning not necessarily no. when you're at the and peak much of it particularly that which is currently still going on in schools is driven as you said by the unions driven by the union so also pushing masks so here's where i wish we had some backpedaling but we don't we have we have double downing so um nadim zahawi said the government would produce evidence to support the reintroduction of masks and the continuation of masks. Yeah, I saw that evidence. Yeah, so it's... Um, <laughs> Sorry. Oh, well, I'm glad you're laughing because I'm actually really cross about the fact yeah. that my teenage sons and all their friends are still wearing masks in school. Well, they shouldn't. And the best evidence that the government produced, I mean, if you read it, the only conclusion you would draw is that we should stop masks now and we should yeah. never have had them. Right. Because they can't Well, the best they evidence. could say was it might help. That was about it. I mean, you melt it all down, all of the nonsense that they came out with, and basically it was, well, they might help, so but we might, should do it. might with no evidence. Yes. So they demonstrated that there may be a 0.6% reduction in absence when but, masks yeah, are introduced. Yeah, 0.6. It's not statistically significant. No. And, of course, there are other confounding factors mm. in that, which they haven't necessarily accounted for. So they, provi they provided inconclusive evidence for mask wearing. But also, um, it was shown that the majority of children don't like wearing them and have problems with them. And that also head teachers and teachers said that it had worsened face-to-face -face communication, which is really obvious. Yes. So we have the government itself unable to provide evidence for its policy, mm. and yet they're still wearing masks. Yes. In Scotland, they're saying they may have to wear them for six years. I oh think my, there are plenty of people oh in God, Scotland who that. are hoping that Nicola Sturgeon isn't around in six years' time to run the country, you know. But it is madness, isn't it? Because you, but as, a, as a parent, you can um, ask for an exemption for your child. Um, and schools, from what I can understand it, are being much less um, draconian than it would at first appear. Because I was hearing and seeing all sorts of emails that people were sending me from schools saying things like, you know, if you wish to have an exemption, you must prove it medically, which is not the law at all. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of parents were kind of worried about that. But in fact, a lot of parents have been in touch with me saying, look, we wrote a letter to the school explaining that we don't want our child to wear a mask and the school were fine with it. Well, they have to be. So if that's if you're uncomfortable, all I'm saying is if you're uncomfortable as a parent, you can do that it's perfectly within yeah. the rules. But it is really difficult for young people. It is to because be a lot of, of them don't of the want few. to be one of the few. Exactly. Except that's really that hard. we also know that some schools up north um, have gone the other way and they've all refused to wear them. Mm. And that way they've taken back control. And that's proper Loved taking it. back control. Go kids. Well done. Brilliant. Yeah. But this report from the government highlighted a survey by Unison, which is a trade union, yes. which found that 71% of members said face coverings in secondary schools are an important safety measure. So it's flying in the face of the actual evidence. And mm. it shows how much it's the unions that are applying pressure for something which is not evidence and reduces the effectiveness of teaching. It's just astonishing. Mm. So, you know, we're still wrapping our children up in, in face masks in schools for no good reason. Yeah. It's, it's awful. It is awful. 
Let's um, talk about. Uh, oh, hmm. we're nearly out of time. Well, we are out of time. No, but I we haven't even it. talked about Djokovic. And I know. Well, Caprio. I have so much more to say. Well, you've got about a minute then to talk about Novak Djokovic. Well, I just think it's really disappointing how gloatful, uh, gloatful. That's gleeful. that's that's gleeful a combination a between gleeful and gloating. Gloatful's good. I like it. Yeah, um, it's a mutation. Yeah. Uh, so th- this kind of gloating attitude towards yeah <laughs> towards Djokovic because. The the tennis association said that his exemption was sufficient. Mm-hmm. Australian border police said no. The courts ruled in his favour. We're going to have to see what happens on Wednesday. I'd say there's no good outcome now for the Australian government. But I think what we've seen happen is people projecting their own frustration yeah. with hideous draconian measures onto Djokovic. Oh, we all had to do it. So, so do you. Yes. Whereas actually, I think there are others of us, like we're kind of split. Some people mm. see him as just a really healthy sports star who yeah. had a relevant he's incredibly exemption. healthy he's incredibly healthy who should be able to go in and play tennis and actually i see him as as standing up for 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 freedom and bodily yeah. autonomy well wasn't it interestingly ironic that nick curios uh, who sometimes has his own problems with the umpires and is thought to be a bit of a sort of uh, i don't know sort of miserable australian tennis player has presumably had the vaccination he's out of the tournament because he just got covid <laughs> and I'm sure he's triple vaccinated. But Djokovic here is being used as a scapegoat and he's being used as a whipping boy for Australians who have spent, what, most of a year in lockdown. And again, Sajid Javid saying, oh, it's unfortunate that uh, people like Novak Djokovic are kind of presenting the view that, you know, you don't have to be vaccinated. He's not. He's just trying to do his job. He's trying to go to Australia to defend his, um, you know, Grand Slam championship win from last year. And that's what he does. What his personal medical qualifications for that are, mm. they're none of anybody's business, including yeah. Sajid Javid. I'm sorry. And anybody who's arguing for 100% conformity, 100% compliance, yeah. is arguing for a totalitarian state. Somebody doesn't want the vaccine, that's up to them. Mm. What goes into their body is their choice. And if you want 100% conformity, that makes me really worry about you. Yes, I agree. Couldn't agree more. Good place to stop. And we'll keep DiCaprio until next week. There's a bit of DiCaprio hypocrisy is always good. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.